When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show, Talk Radio 77 WABC. We have such a good Sunday prepared for you today. Two of my favorite actors, performers, comedians are coming to visit. We do this, you know, every Sunday at 2 o'clock. You're always invited. And by the way, if by some reason you can't get there in time, don't worry. This show is podcast, and we do another podcast called Let Me Tell You. And you can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter. We're everywhere. And you're part of it, too. Instagram. I know my kids still think it's really funny that I'm doing all this stuff. But I felt that we needed a good laugh. And I'm sure you do too. It's it's time. We've got to just sit and enjoy ourselves and not every day be up to our necks in virus, in disease, in all this stuff about vaccines. We just got to grab ourselves and go ahead with everything and make life doable and possible. So that's why I checked in with my pal, Susie Essman who's about to start her 11th season on Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm, one of my most favorite shows, because it's about nothing, and yet it's really funny. And Susie, whom I've known as a stand-up for, I can't even tell you how long, I think over 20 years. In fact, that's how Susie Essman, who plays Susie Green on this show, The Foul-Mouthed Wife, and really lets people have it. But that's how she met Larry David. They were both, over 20 years ago, doing stand-up. And he was the comic's comic. He wasn't very nice to the audience, but all the comedians loved him because he didn't care whether he was loved by an audience or not. He's one of the great writers. He's truly brilliant. And if you've never seen this show, really, it's coming in a week or two, you are truly going to get a lot of laughs. And it's based on real life. So I can't think of anything better. And then the busiest working actor, many of you know Bob Balaban from Best in Show, from so many fabulous movies, from the Wes Anderson movies, Gosford Park, which he created. And he wrote, he did everything on that show. He's done amazing work. And you name a movie, and there's a chance that Balaban is in it. And he's not a leading man, as he says. He was too short. He had all these different issues that might prevent him from getting parts in Hollywood. And yet he started working right away. He grew up in a family that was in the movie business. 
and he's a great actor, a great writer, a producer, a director, and he's done all of these movies that you've seen. He's quite fabulous. So he's in a couple of movies now that are just being released. And I saw him in something that is, was streaming and is still streaming on TV called The Chair. And you are going to really enjoy that. It's not about chairs. It's about college and getting to be the chairman and all those good things, you know, and getting to be part of the academic scene. And it takes place in a, in a college that's at the bottom of the Ivy League list. It's a would-be Ivy. And many of the old professors have tenure, so they can't get rid of them. And the new young ones want to make dramatic changes. And it has a lot of stuff in it about a single mother, about an interracial adoption, mother-daughter stuff. So there's a lot. And I know you're going to like it. Plus, I've got a lot of interesting stuff on voting, where and how you can do that. And I brought to you, in case you missed it, the new guidelines when it comes to too much salt in food. So I know we usually tell you food you can buy, where you can eat, and there still are places that you can go to. You know, New York is definitely waking up. It's busy. And the theater is opening its eyes and opening its arms. Lots of shows coming in. So do find something you want to see and take yourself. Get a ticket. It's been not only a disaster for all the actors, but for all the restaurants that surround theater. And I feel we, we have to support. This is the heart of the city. I often think of our Sardis, where for so many years I would do my show. And for two years, there was almost no business in these places. And I met a friend at Wolfgang's on 41st Street in the theater district near the New York Times. And, you know, one of the famous steakhouses. And you forget delicious food, special lunches, or so all the good restaurants in that neighborhood, and they're ready to say hello. So you know what? Make a plan, meet your friends, come in, celebrate all the great things that are happening in New York. Feinstein's has wonderful acts, wonderful material. So go do it. Take yourself out for dinner. In fact, I'm still eating outside. It's getting a little cold, but I went... um, to a really good restaurant. I'm going to tell you all about that because it's something that we like. It's a restaurant that I hadn't been to in almost two years, like almost every restaurant. It's called Elio's, and it's on 84th Street and 2nd Avenue. They did a great job with outside seating. It is so pleasant to be there, I can't tell you. And they have heaters, not the big tall ones, better than that from the ceiling that look like they're built in. So if it is a little cold or a little windy, you really don't feel it. And they have the best chicken scarpiella in New York. It was fun. It was lively. We had a ball. 
and I'm looking forward to going back. So, you know, now I feel it's our moral obligation to help support. And Danny Meyer has opened his first new restaurant in such a long time. So take advantage, make a plan, and come and rejoice in one of the greatest cities in the world. It's back, and we can help make it come back even more. Well, I want you to relax, take a breath, because you've got Susie Essman, one of my favorite comedians, actresses. Susie is coming up, and then Bob Balaban, too. I'm Joan Hamburg, and the Sunday show is straight ahead. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats. This is not a very cheerful Joan Eats because, according to the CDC, we are eating too much salt and not good. And let me explain to you. Sodium is from, of course, salt, and we are consuming a lot of it. We need a little bit of it to function. And let me explain to you. We eat about 3,400 milligrams of sodium a day, and the guidelines from health.gov say we shouldn't have anything over 2,300. That's like a teaspoon of table salt. Think about what you cook with. We do a lot of Asian food at home. So we use fish sauce, soy, tamari. A single tablespoon of soy sauce has close to 1,000 milligrams of sodium. Fish sauce, which is a popular ingredient these days, over 1,300 milligrams of sodium. Anything, commercial foods, really have it. So we've got to learn to cut back because it really affects our health. Read all the labels of processed food, which I guarantee most people don't do. First of all, they're so small, you can't read them. Campbell's Condensed Noodle Soup, chicken noodle soup, has 890 milligrams in one serving. That's already 39% of your daily value. A Thomas Bagel, 450 milligrams. Breads contain a lot. Frozen pizza can go as high as 730 milligrams. Cottage cheese, what a lot of people think of as a health food, 450 milligrams of sodium. Cabot nonfat cottage cheese, a lot. Axelrod, a lot. And buffalo chicken cheesesteak, if you love Jersey Mike subs, 3,479 milligrams. So adding it up may be a pain in the neck, but you're going to be surprised at how much sodium you're consuming on a daily basis. And you know what? You've got to stop. Taking you behind the curtain, it's the Joan Hamburg Show, Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's a celebration, not even a parade, but it's the 11th season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and the one and only Susie Essman is returning. She has been there for 11 whole seasons. In between, she's done a zillion television things. She's written books. She's raised a house full of children, all unexpected. And I don't know, Susie is up to two zillion things. Congratulations <laughs> on everything. And you still have the foul mouth. You are the perfect wife. <laughs> I know. I haven't outgrown that. 
You <laughs> no, but sometimes when you think like you're starting, now you're, the season is about when is it? October twenty fourth on HBO. October twenty fourth, yeah. Yeah. You know, Joan, we've been doing this for 21 years. Hard to believe, right? It really is. I mean, what we've been through for the past 21 years, marriages, divorce, babies, grandkids, it's like, you know, it's family. Right. And a lot of the same people are still back there. And to think yeah. that it all started in a comedy club a zillion years ago. Larry David was doing stand-up, and so were you. Yep. Amazing, right? That's where we met. And I remember we used to hang out at the bar at Catch a Rising Star because all the comics hung out. And Joy Behar, who is our mutual right. dearest friend, um, Joy and I would be standing at the bar and Larry would just be telling us all his tales of woe of his <laughs> dating life. And all of those stories he was told us became George Costanza storylines. Uh, unreal. And the, yeah. and you described, which I loved because... I love stand-up, and we used to go all the time. It was the biggest thing in New York. And Larry, you would describe, was so dangerous that the comics wouldn't leave even if they finished their bits because they wanted it right. Because you knew something funny was going to happen when he was on stage. He was so um, he was so volatile and so, like, you know, ready to just hate the audience for whatever they did. Everybody's laughing. One person's not laughing. That's who he zeroes in on and goes crazy on them. He was just—he was just so funny, right so funny. T- but I will say this: in back in those years in the '80s, if you would have said to any comedian hanging out at the bar, "Larry's going to be richer and more famous than all of us put together," nobody would believe it. No, because you—you you would describe that he would come out and he'd look at the audience, and he would shake his head and said, "Nah, no good." I don't think so. And then he'd walk off. He was unreal because he didn't care about But pleasing. he had amazing, amazing material. He that had he wrote, such funny right? material. He wrote it. Yeah. He was a great writer, which but, I think he's proved. And then you kept up with Larry David. I'm talking to Susie Esman, who plays. You know, I didn't really keep up with him. He moved to L.A., of course, to do Seinfeld. And... Um, I didn't see him. I, I think I ran into him a couple times when he was in New York, but we weren't that kind of friends. You know, we were very friendly, but not call each other kind of friends. And then he saw me in 1999. I did a Friars roast of Jerry Stiller. Uh-huh. I miss Jerry. I used to I run know. into him all the time on the Upper West Side. Love him. Um, what a dear man. And and also I miss uh, uh, Anne. Yeah. She was so funny. I know. They were great. They were like my um, anyway, inspiration he, when I started out because yeah, they would yeah. do those what blue nun wine commercials on the radio <laughs> do you remember those they were crazy i do i do anyway um, go ahead so but and, and so larry saw me on that roast and it was like oh you know light bulb oh Susie, she's perfect for this part so um he called me up and gave me the part but you know i hadn't seen him in all those years but that goes to my uh my theory about careers and success, which is just keep showing up, showing up, showing up. And it will happen. Because that's what I did for the Friars all those years, that they would have all these benefits and I had to prove myself because, you know, all those all those old stark comedians, sk- they didn't yeah. think I, I was going to be funny because I was a girl. <laughs> those old comics. I know, yeah, but... The, the Alan Kings and, you know, I mean, if you're, especially if you're halfway decent looking, it's very confusing for them in those days. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then when Larry David 
gave you Susie Green, was she developed yet or did you have to find her? You know, she he had one scene in mind in that first season where she's screaming and yelling at Jeff. Jeff brings a fresh air front kid into the house to live with us. And the kid robs us blind. So he had that scene in mind where she's just cursing and screaming and yelling, and he wanted that kind of energy, which, you know, I was perfectly capable of doing. But beyond that, I've never gotten a direction from him, ever. We've never discussed the character. It just kind of developed. I just kind of made up this character I wanted to play who was was incredibly um, reactive. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't analyze anything. Did you say this? She punches back, whatever it is. She's completely secure in all of her feelings and opinions, the way she dresses. She thinks she's the greatest dresser in the world. So I kind of developed this character that's very unlike me because I question everything and analyze everything. I'm a comic. Of course. Um, because it was, I thought it'd be fun to play. And, then... and I thought it'd be fun. <laughs> oh, this is funny, Joan. When the, I had this idea of how I wanted her to dress which is kind of like, you know, well, how she dresses. Right. And uh, our wardrobe designer at the time in season one was from the Midwest, and she said to me, well, where am I going to find clothes like that? And I said to her, the back room of Lomans, and she had never heard of Lomans. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the now defunct. So we had to do a field trip. I had to take her to the back room of Lomans. She's like, I've never seen things like this. It's like, that's right. <laughs> and our mothers used to have favorite salespeople who worked yes. at Lomans. My mother would get a call and say, guess what came in? And she would pack us all in the car with her girlfriends. They stopped playing Mahjong at that moment. And they would hit the hills for Lomans. Yeah. And I told you, it was like, special. crazy. And my favorite Lomans story was I go in the back room and they had the rolling, you know, carts where the clothes were hanging. And there was a dress that I really liked. So I take my clothes off. I tie that dress on. And I said, okay, I'm done. I'm buying it. And as I'm walking out holding the dress, this tall, fairly elegant woman says to me, what are you doing with that? That's my dress. I said, how could it be your dress? She said, "Oh, she (laughs) she took it off to try on something. Connie Eisenstadt, I'll never forget it. From California. She came all the way to Lomans, and I was buying her dress. That's hilarious. You had to give it back to her, of course. Of course I had to give it back to her. Oh, how disappointing. You you remember how, like, everyone had an opinion. You know, you had the one big dressing room, open dressing room. With all of us in it. Exactly. And everybody had an opinion, strangers, on whatever you tried on. (laughs) It was hilarious in there. (laughs) <laughs> and we ended up buying a whole lot of stuff. And I don't know about you, but then we would go over to Arthur Avenue and go to the market and get all that Italian food. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Something exclusion be without food. So Susie Green was your real development. She was there, but she was sort of a skeleton when you first met her. Yeah, I, I created her. I created her. And, and, you know, Larry and I, over the years, as I said, we've never discussed the character, but we're so in tune so that as seasons went on, he would get what I was doing and write more towards it. And I would get what he wanted and give him more. You know, we just had had what I always call a dialogue of the unconscious and it developed. And this season where we have so much, we have more stuff together than ever this season. And there's a lot of 
there's a lot of quid pro quo going on. Like you do this for me and I'll do this for you, et cetera. It's great. Well, I can't wait. And I've seen some, you know, some of the little tips and advances that were up there. And it's it could not be funnier. It, we have such just... great guest stars this season, Joan. Oh, tell me. Who have you got? Oh, okay. For Tracy Ullman, who is brilliant. Love her. Oh, my God. She's so funny. She's in, in the four episodes, I think. So she's got a run. She's got an arc. Uh, let me think who else. Uh, Woody Harrelson, Bill Hader, wow. uh, Lucy Liu, uh, Julie Bowen. Oh, you um, big time. Uh, um, uh Seth Rogen, Albert Brooks. Um, I'm leaving people out. No, but Matt it's Walsh. fantastic. There's just so many great guest stars. And then other regulars are back. Vince Vaughn is back. Ted Danson is back. Richard Kind, your, your cousin is cousin, back. He's my cousin. Cousin Richard. I know. He's funny. Oh, God, he's so funny. He's so talented. No, Do you Richard know that is. Richard and I met each other in 1980 in an acting class? Wait, in, New in New York, York or Chicago? New York. Yeah, in New York. Oh, my God. Well, it just shows you. And 20 years you did stand-up. And, you know, if someone had said what it, what's going to be, you in a million years probably couldn't have thought of this. Or even Larry David at that time. If somebody said to me in 1983, this is where your life is going to end up when you were 66 years old, I would have said, give it to right? me. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> and at what stage? I forgot when you met Jimmy, your now husband. How many years into curb were you i met we started in 2000 and i met jimmy in 2003 so i don't remember which season probably three we right. were doing, we, we have beginning. so long between seasons that i never remember and jimmy but luckily he didn't when even i know. met him he didn't he didn't have hbo so he had never seen me because you know it was a little difficult people seeing Susie green to get a date you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh um, and the stories of you, I still remember when I'd say, how's your social life, Susie? And you'd say, I'm nibbling. I'm nibbling. <laughs> I'm snacking. <laughs> you know, snacking. all those years when I was doing stand-up, it was so easy not to have a, a boyfriend or a husband because you have a built-in social life. You walk into any club, you know everybody there. You don't have to make any effort. You know all, you know all the comics, all the bartenders, all the waitresses, right. waiters, You're whatever. Home. Your home, it's your it's your cheers, you know, and um, and working every Saturday night, working New Year's Eve, working all those, you know, all those date night things. I was always working. Which is a gift. But when you first started working on Curb, I still remember you were barely getting enough money to pay for an apartment rent. Oh, yeah. The first the first five, six seasons, actually. Well, yeah, because now, no one... now we're good. Now I'm happy. Now we're good. I hope so. Because you make us all happy. And, you know, I know it's my favorite show. But if you've never seen Curb, it's a real treat. And Susie, this Susie, plays another Susie who really isn't like her. But she is the foul-mouthed wife of Jeff, who is the manager, the agent of Larry David. And all fabulous characters and all make you laugh. By the way, you were very funny on Colbert. You did Thanks, a great John. job on that. And, Thank you. You know, and it's not easy. You know, do you ever get anxiety when you always. have to of do that? I get anxiety. I always get anxiety. You know, people. One of the hardest things is you know people like oh just relax, be yourself. It's not so easy to just be yourself. Yeah, like who is yourself? You, you know? got a lot of selves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
um, and you want to be entertaining and you want to be so right. Um, he was pretty easy to talk to, so I enjoyed that. Most most talk show hosts, well, you look, you do it. You're great. You've been doing this for how many years? You yeah. know how to oh talk to God. people. It's different. Though. But you go on national television, there's always some self-consciousness and anxiety, of course. You know, and it's interesting because when I see my friends on national TV, I start getting this nervous feeling, which is ridiculous in the pit of my stomach. What I know, I do, do the same thing because you're worried that they're not going to be good enough. Right. That, and that, that somehow they're just, you, you, you just feel anxious for them. And you know, you and Joy are really funny people. I mean, the way you look at life and things, you have a funny outlook. But a lot of comics and stand-ups are really sort of depressives. You know, they're not funny, That's funny true. people. That's so true. I often wonder how tough it is when you're doing a guest appearance, not you, but I mean others on major shows, how you have to get yourself up for it. Well, you know, you do. You have to. It's like getting on stage. You, you have to prepare and you have to focus and you have to get in. You know, before I would have to get on stage when I used to do stand up, I would have to put myself in a certain head. You know, it's almost a self uh, hypnosis thing that you do that you just put yourself in a place because believe me, I would not, not every time I had to go do stand up was I in the mood, you know, I'm you're not sure. always in the mood to be funny. So um, it's different when you're doing a show and you're acting with other people, but when you're doing stand up, it's just all you and I the know. onus is completely on you. And it's, it's hard and it's a lot of stress. No, like being vulnerable, being out there all alone. And if, if, if people don't laugh, Oh my gosh, you know? Yeah. Much easier to be a, a, a musician, although you have to hit the notes. You got other people around you usually. It's true, but you're not alone, and, and that's the difference. Stand up is very isolating, and and you've got to do it. And in the midst of all this, you suddenly acquired four children. That's... Yes, <laughs> but they're all older now. Now I'm a grandma. Now, I She's coming live. over today, my little girl. Oh, that's hysterical. But the kids accepted you, right? Yes. But, but yeah, listen, I'm not going to say it was all one day at the beach. Right. There were issues. Um, but, you know, I, I work very hard at it. And it, it's not the one thing that I, I always learned from the very beginning was that I could not compete with them. They had to come first. That was with Jimmy. smart. Yeah. Because I've watched other people have that problem. Other friends of mine who are step parents. And there's just a natural uh, competition there, I think. Right, especially girls. And, uh, like what? I said especially girls. Girls oh, especially can be girls, very which tough. I had three. So I was very, very conscious. You know, at a different time in my life, it probably wouldn't have worked out as well. But at, when I, I met them, I was 48. I had been through so much therapy. I had been through so much work on myself. And um, I think that it was the right time in my life. To, right. to take that on. If I had been, you know, 38, it might not Different. have worked. Yeah but, yeah, but you sort of knew who you were. And right. it, it makes a whole difference. Susie, all the best to you. Season 11, October 24th, HBO, HBO Max. Curb your enthusiasm and you will participate and say hello to the one and only Susie Green. We'll talk very Thanks, soon. Thanks, Joan. Take care, love, to Jimmy. We'll see you. All right. Bye-bye. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC.
taking you behind the curtain. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome everyone to the Joan Hamburg Show. And I am very happy to reintroduce you to one of the busiest working actors ever, anywhere. Bob Balaban. He is a producer. He's a director. He writes. He's an actor. And I I have a lot of friends who are actors. And I've never had anyone who works more than Mr. Balaban. And he, in fact, you know, we talked earlier about about Gosford Park, one of our favorites, which he created. He produced it. And Bob also was in something that I caught on TV that I have to tell you how it resonated with me. It, it's, you can get it streaming. It's called The Chair. And to me, it was really special. And I'm going to let the one and only Balaban explain. Uh-huh. All the, now, you, have, you grew up in a family that was in the movie business, but from the time you were a kid, in college, you sort of went, you knew this was going to be your direction. Well, I never actually thought I would get to do anything. I thought my fallback position, which is even harder than being an actor, was to be a writer. So thank God I didn't have to fall back on that. <laughs> uh, but I was always interested in some form of make make believe. I was a puppeteer starting at the age of three and annoyed my family forever for giving weekly puppet shows and charging admission and making them all come. But at least it did help lead to this idea because when you're a puppeteer, you get to be the actor too, because the puppets don't know what they're saying. You have to do the talking. So I think I was preparing for a career at this, but never thought I would be an actor. I wasn't tall. I didn't look like actors look. And that's probably exactly the reason I started getting jobs. And you started working all the time early on always doing something. I remember so many years ago, a big story in the New York Times, and it was about sort of America's busiest working actor that you may not have the lead, but you were in the major stuff. Well, when when you're trying to do four or five different careers, it's much easier to give the appearance of being busy. If you just had to select one out, I wouldn't be that busy. (laughs) No, but, but busy too. And you like all of the disciplines, right? From acting, writing, they, directing. Well, I do, and they all seem to help each other, both because you get to meet more people, which exposes you to more possibilities, and also simply because it's really good if you're an actor to know what's going on behind the scenes. And any time you're directing or producing, you're just watching other actors in a way that you don't get to watch them when you're working with them as, as an actor. And it's very, it's very... It helps. Well, when I was when I was in college, I never thought I would, you know, I just thought I'd be in college and then I'd God knows figure out what to do. And at one point, my wife, Lynn, came to me because she used to read show backstage and show business, these magazines that pretended to help you get a job. And in this case, yeah. they really did. She said, they're doing you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Uh, they need somebody to be Linus. And the main prerequisite is that you be five foot, five and a half or shorter. And that was, and I got, Heaven. that's how I got my first job in New York. <laughs> On stage, which is great. Yeah, and, it was great. You know, and, and it kept on. And then 
like a person like Wes Anderson, a brilliant, creative guy, you you do so many Wes Anderson projects, films. When did that start? It started about eight years ago with a movie called Moonrise Kingdom, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, I, I, of course, knew very much who he was and was very happy when he called me. And he said he'd like me to do something. And I soon learned that when you work with Wes, you're working in a big extended family. He treats everybody like their relatives in a good way, because <laughs> some of us don't treat our relatives that well. Um, but he creates a real feeling of everybody's on a team and we're all pulling. And some, and he often, one, one, once he hires you for something, he does tend to ask you back again, because he likes to be familiar with the people he's working with. It's just it's just something he likes, and it's an awful lot of fun to keep working, and you you make friends, and you're working with your friends. So um, when you're when you're when Wes calls you and says, "Do you want to be in the next movie?" Yeah, uh, you don't say, "How big's my part going to be?" Because we're 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 friends, and we're quite quasi relatives at this point. You just go, and sometimes you just get to open your mouth a couple of times and wave, and sometimes you have an actual part. And it and it really doesn't matter in the long run. It's like a repertory company. It's really fun. And how much fun! You just came back from Spain, and it was like being with all the relatives. And I'm sure that it was really amusing and comfortable and warm and a great adventure. Well, it was great, and it worked out well for COVID because we all stayed in this one giant. I wouldn't call it a hotel. It used to be a monastery in the 1400s. But it had everything attached to it, so we never had to go anywhere. We never saw anybody else who wasn't in our pod, and we all got tested all the time. So it was, it was a great way to to get to know your friends even better because nobody could do anything else except go to work or or be at the hotel. And we all had dinner every night as soon as Wes finished shooting. You we'd all go sit at this giant table outside and have fabulous and, uh, food and and have a, a dinner with with your friends. And as long as you moved around the table every night. You got to sit next to a different friend. Which I love. And it was a, great. a Wes Anderson movie just opened at the film festival, The French Dispatch. You're in that. And the new movie is the one that you went to Spain for. So Yes, yes. That's I can't say one. anything about it because it's Wait. always very top secret. But I can say The French Dispatch is insanely fun to watch. No. And if, if for all of us who have been in a related field. It's about journalism, journalists, and it's just sounds fantastic. I'm looking forward to see it, and it's got a great cast. Well, Wes, well, I mean, a lot of movie directors in his generation have an encyclopedic knowledge of movies, but Wes has something else. He's literate, and he reads everything, and he started reading The New Yorker when he was a kid, and it continues to be one of his favorite magazines and things to read. And in, in, in many ways, the French Dispatch is kind of a love letter to The New Yorker. Well, I look forward to it. And I know people who have seen it and are having such a good time with it, loved it, and are talking about it. But then I told you earlier, I saw something called The Chair. And I have to tell you, I don't know why that resonated so much, but I do have friends who are academics and I thought this was really something special. And I loved your part, too, Bob. It's about, it's about, well, Sandra Oh is in it. And it's about the chair 
of an English department. Very unusual, a woman. It's good that people know that because otherwise they think it's a movie about places A chair. Exactly. (laughs) No, but when you see it, it's the perfect title, right? And how hard it is to get tenure. And here she not only gets tenure, but it's so unusual that a woman and an Asian woman would have this position. And you meet all kinds of people, including Bob Balaban, who's a professor of American Lit. And you deal with ageism and so many people like academics who have been in place for a long period of time are really resistant to change. And why not? That could mean the end of their careers. Well, it's interesting. This is such a major topic in everywhere, but especially in the in colleges and universities around the country. And yet nobody ever writes about it because I guess it's kind of boring. It sounds boring when you say cancel culture. It, it's very mm-hmm. serious. And it is a serious thing. But how brilliant of Amanda Pete and the other people and everybody at Netflix for figuring out that the only way you could do a, a, this subject matter was to make it into a black comedy because it is a black comedy. It's funny and it's terrible and it's very watchable. I was I myself was surprised when I read it because I thought they're making me really get interested in this. And if you didn't do that, it, it would just be like a, a, a lesson, which it's not. Right. And it, and it it deals with so many issues. It deals with a single mother. I, I thought that part was too, was really extraordinary, too. You know, everyone portrays families like the Brady Bunch. But here right. we have this woman, this head, this chair of her department, a big deal. And she adopts a child. And she's Asian. And she adopts a child, I think, from Mexico. And it the relationship between the mother and child is so real that I was taken aback. I thought, this well, is... She, first of all, Sandra Oh is so talented. Wonderful. And the writing is great. But that little girl, I, I've never seen another kid actor do what this kid is able to do. Right. And it looks like it's the easiest thing in the world, and I can't wait to see what she's going to do when she's actually 15 years old. Right. She's a little kid. But she really did a great job. And we felt for all the characters, including your character, you know, we didn't know whether we wanted to root for him, you know, to hang on to his job because he really worked hard. And, of course, the university, the college that is the subject of this is a would-be Ivy League, you know, maybe at the bottom of the Ivy League ladder, (laughs) right? And then... They didn't know how to get... In the movie, I mean, in real life, they could have gotten rid of me by firing me. But you can't do that if you've got tenure. Um, And so I was the stodgy old white man, Jew, no less. Um, I I was just holding on to my traditional ways. And I had a wonderful, Nana Mentz is her name. She's a wonderful young actor. And she's chomping at the bit to be modern and to to have Zoom calls with people and and basically take over. So um, it, it, there, there were just wonderful characters in it, and it represented all kinds of trouble that you can get into sexually, content-wise. The, and the other terrible issue in, in college is if nobody comes to your classes, it doesn't mean how doesn't matter how brilliant you are. you got to find a way to make them come to class. Right. And Nana was able to do that by, by using Twitter as a tool, which my character practically had a nervous breakdown of. Of course, who knows from that stuff? And 
No, that was it was really fascinating. And people don't understand, too, you know, like in the theater, you've got to fill those seats or your survival can be very iffy. And I think there were a lot of life lessons in that. And it's only six half hour episodes. So go see it if you haven't seen it yet. Now, also, in the middle of all the stuff that you're doing, I saw you had done some evenings at Guildhall. Is that what you're working on now? More of that? Little individuals and scenes and one acts and things? No, basically, that was something for the summer to help to raise the money for Guildhall, which it actually did. But also, it really was the first time so many people in audiences and me me as a director, uh, I haven't encountered a live audience for almost two years. And it was just a great pleasure. Now, everybody was double vaccinated. You had to wear your mask all the time. And they were very strict about it. And we did this show twice. And it was a series of COVID monologues, which, again, sounds about as appealing as cancel culture. (laughs) And it was really fun to watch. Some of them were actually, well, it was about how did you deal with the year 2020? Uh, And there were a couple of serious monologues in there. But more than that, there were a lot of funny, hopefully really funny stuff. Because it's kind of hard to get an audience if you're doing all of one thing. No, and we need to laugh. I mean, there's no question that we need that kind of relief. So but when the when the when the when the the two times we did it, every time the lights went down and the actors started coming out, you could literally feel the relief in the audience. We're getting to see real people; they're getting to experience us, and especially doing monologues. It's a very personal way to deal with an audience, and it was a great way to sort of tiptoe back into real theater. Right. Now, in between all of the things you do, can you allow yourself to relax, or do you have that actor's anxiety? What's going to be next? What's going to be next? The most relaxing time for me is when I know I have two jobs lined up and I know what I'm doing for the next eight months. Then I'm relaxing. <laughs> oh, you are too much. <laughs> you, you, you hit the nail on the head. No, you're, so do you have a lot of stuff lined up? Well, I'm developing two or three new projects that I would potentially produce and direct. I'm very excited about them, but those are the things that you just plug away and plug away, and then every once in a while something like a Gosford Park or an Exonerated or something I did called uh, Bernard and Doris about Doris Duke and her butler. I saw Sometimes things that. you've been pushing for years and years – suddenly come through and it's almost easy. And uh, then sometimes it can take years for these things to happen. But that's what I'm concentrating on right now. So are we talking about screenplays, theater plays? One One's a theater play that I would actually act in. But uh-huh. I think it's going to be, well, I'm not, we have to wait to see what's happening in New York in the fall. And well, this is the fall. And I it know, is but, happening. Right. Yeah. And but this... the other things I'm developing are basically limited television series. All right. Well, it all sounds exciting. And content is where it's at, right? I mean, everyone is looking for content. Well, there are so many outlets that it's almost impossible to find anything new and interesting. You really have to go looking hard. And the, the great thing about it is, when you think about it, how, how many, not many years ago, there were three ways of watching television, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Exactly. And now you can't even name, if you had 20 hands, you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't line up every possible outlet because there's there's hundreds of places that need your content. 
No. Of course, there are more people trying, but it, it's a lot of opportunity. No, I agree. And it's a very exciting time. And of course, it raises a lot of questions, which I'm sure the movie industry is dealing with right now. You know, are we going to go back to movie houses and create movies for houses and for the big movie market? Or are we going to look at what you and I have been talking about, streaming and all the different um, stations, some of which we never even heard of? People need a guide to how to get onto these different things. Well, I remember when the best writing was all being done for theatrical movies and television was where the funny, stupid stuff was. Uh-huh. And now, in many cases, it's the actual opposite thing. If it's something new and interesting and really well-written and a little bit unusual, you're going to find it on TV. It won't be able to find a home as a movie. Although we have to remember that a lot of the bigger places like Netflix and and uh, other places are just as happy to do a movie for television as they are a series. Uh, so it's just a lot of places for your projects to go. Right. And do and, you and find... As, and as you said... Go yep, ahead. And, and, and if you really want to fill a theater, you better have James Bond or a superhero. And he is a superhero, isn't he? My favorite. I know. I yeah. love it. I, I people, My yeah. friends make fun of me because I'm such uh-huh. a James Bond groupie. But to me, that's the ultimate escapism, right? I yeah. Mean, you you and, just sink down and let that happen. It's like meeting an old friend every three and a half years. Yeah. But this guy is finished. So now we have to find another one that we like. Well, that that's the that's the big surprise. Who knows, right? I'm, I mean, I'm sure they have 10 people they're thinking about. But, in, you know, it's exciting in a way. It's well, like we need waiting you. to see how the new cars are going to come out. Bob, we need you in a James Bond movie. Well, I, I would accept. That's okay. Um, I, I could be a very quirky, sort of unlikely villain, I suppose. I think that would be really great and funny uh-huh. because that's real life. You know, I. Yes. The biggest villains don't always look like villains. No, not at all. I think that would be great. Anyway, whatever you're doing, we all look forward to it. Congratulations on everything on the movies, on the theater on all the two million before breakfast Balaban projects. <laughs> and we'll talk well, to you. It's <laughs> great talking to you, Joan, and I love hearing your voice. We'll talk soon. And I'm Thanks. Joan Hamburg. That's Bob Balaban. And you're listening to your favorite radio station, WABC. Stay tuned. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. You've probably seen a whole bunch of political ads. It's fast and furious now. So we did get a couple of people asking us, how do we vote? Is there something new? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts. If you're a New Yorker, you've got three ways to vote in the November general election. Vote in person, and it's early voting, is from Saturday October 23rd to Sunday, October 31st. And early voting sites may be different from your election day poll site. So check it. You go on to findmypollsite.vote.nyc, okay? The second thing is you can vote by mail. And you've got to request an absentee ballot. The deadline is Monday, October 18th. 2021. And again, 
go on to nycabsentee.com. But if you go to your local board of election until 5 o'clock on Monday, November 1st, believe it or not, it's November 1st on Monday, you can get your ballot in person. And they have to be postmarked before the 2nd. And the board of elections has to receive it. So make sure you sign and date the back of your absentee ballot envelope. Third, election day, you can vote in person like we used to do, remember? Tuesday, November 2nd. There may be long lines. They're anticipating a lot of action. So if you don't want to be part of that crowd, consider early voting between October 23rd and October 31st. Now, if you live in New Jersey, they have its first early in-person voting this year. And it's an option. Early voting is opening October 23rd through October 31st. You don't need an appointment. Go to nj.gov slash state slash elections. Connecticut right now does not offer in-person voting, but you can return your absentee ballots in person at the town clerk's office or visit the secure drop box that the Office of the Secretary of State has provided for each town. So I hope that gives you the kind of information that you've asked me. But the big thing is we've got to vote. Don't not vote. It's essential. All right, everyone. I'm looking at the clock, and it's 3 o'clock. So we are going to lead you right in to the next great show on WABC. And don't forget, you and I do this every Sunday starting at 2. You can join us by podcast. You can join us by Twitter, on Facebook. We're there. And enjoy the rest of your Sunday. We'll talk again very soon. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to your favorite radio station, WABC. WABC.